This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Vanessa R. Panfield discusses her new book, The Gang's All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members. Then our own Mark Rotella recalls the life of editor Judith Jones. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. Hi, Mark. I missed you. So, it's been weeks. I'm, it really has. I know. It's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you again, too. So what's happening on, on the hardcover nonfiction list? Well, it's a little bit slow, uh, debut-wise, um, activity elsewhere, but let's talk about the debuts. The highest one we have at number 17 is actually a cookbook, Bianco, Pizza, Pasta, and Other Foods I Like by Chris Bianco. And Chris is the restaurateur of uh, three Phoenix uh, restaurants, Pizzeria Bianco, Pane Bianco, and Trat. And here he, uh, you know, he shares everything on uh, the particulars of what makes a good pizza dough and a fresh tomato sauce and how that, you know, how to put that all together uh, with such pizzas as a pizza rosa made with red onions, rosemary, and chopped pistachios. So he's got really some really great, though still in ways traditionally Italian seeming ingredients. Uh, he won the uh, James Beard Award for Best Chef of the Southwest in 2003, and uh, he also provides other recipes like for pasta, as the subtitle said, like a, uh, a spinach and ricotta crepe, they call it a crespelle, uh, that his mother used to make for every Christmas Eve. And uh, then they have a few other ingredients. He, he, he incorporates rosemary fingerlings, roasted figs with fontina and prosciutto, and a few others. So it's, it's, it's um, obviously people are uh, taking to it. So, uh, and the, the foods are relatively easy to prepare. Popular, great for sharing with guests. Next, we have number 18, Sons and Soldiers, the untold story of the Jews who escaped the Nazis and returned with the U.S. Army to fight Hitler by Bruce Henderson. Uh, Henderson, who's a musical historian and the author of Rescue uh, at Los Banos, uh, shares the story of eight of the uh, nearly 2,000 young German Austrian Jewish men who escaped the Nazis. And they emigrated to America, joined the U.S. Army, and returned to uh, Europe. Uh, we say uh, there's a few shortcomings. Uh, he opens the book by overstating the number of victims of the November 1938 uh, German national pogrom no, known as Kristallnacht. But despite these shortcomings, this is an ably researched and written account of a previously unknown facet of the American Jewish dimension of World War II. And then finally, at number 25, 
Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, Harari, who's a professor of history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, provocatively explores what the future may have in store for humans in this deeply troubling book, uh, according to our review. Here, he, he makes clear that it's impossible to predict the future, so he claims to be offering possibilities rather than prophecies, and he builds a strong case for uh, you know every specific outcome. We say that he paints a very broad brush throughout, but he raises stimulating questions about both the past and the future. And that's all we have. What do we have on fiction? There's not too much happening over on the fiction list either. Uh, our top debut is at number three. That's The Lying Game by Ruth Ware. We call it an engrossing psychological thriller. She's most recently the author of The Woman in Cabin 10. And in this case, um, the narrator gets a text from an old friend and needs to drop everything and go to a small town on England's south coast where the two of them once attended a cut-rate boarding school. And uh, as a group of old friends get together, um, who were the four, they, they were four girls who had what they called the lying game while they were at school. And now as adults, they're having to confront some of uh, the, the repercussions of what they did as girls. We say that alternating between the past and present, Ware builds up a rock solid cast of intriguing characters and spins a mystery that will keep readers turning pages to the end. Uh, so that's at number three. And at uh, number five is Paradise Valley by C.J. Box. Uh, we say this is an excellent conclusion to a quartet of loosely related novels that started with 2011's Back of Beyond. We gave it a starred review, uh, and it features a woman named Cassie Duell, who's now the chief investigator for a sheriff's department in North Dakota, and she's trying to get a sting operation going to entrap a serial killer who preys on sex workers who work at truck stops. Uh, we say that the intrepid, appealing Cassie relies on her keen investigative instincts in this top-notch thriller, which makes vivid use of the American West. At number eight is The Painted Queen. We also gave this a star, and uh, this is by Elizabeth Peters and Joan Hess. Peters died in 2013. This was her final novel, uh, which Hess is completing, and uh, Hess is Peters' friend, as well as a fellow mystery author. And uh, this series features forthright Amelia Peabody Emerson and her irascible archaeologist husband, Radcliffe Emerson. What great names. These are good mystery names. And uh, this is set in the early 20th century, uh, in this case 1912, and they go back to the setting of the very first Peabody book, which came out all the way back in 1975. Um, so when we say long-running series, we really mean it. And they basically it brings the whole series full circle, goes back to the to the origins and uh, and wraps everything up very neatly. And we say that uh, although fans may be a bit disappointed by some unresolved questions, such as hints of a connection between this series and another series that Peters wrote, uh, the Vicky Bliss series, we say the Emerson clan takes a fitting final bow as the curtain falls on a pioneering career. And finally, at number 14 is Deadfall by Linda Fairstein. Um, this is her 19th novel featuring Manhattan prosecutor Alexandra Coop Cooper. And uh, we say it's sure to jolt series fans um, is a dramatic opening in which Coop is in the autopsy room of the city morgue, cradling the body of her longtime boss and friend who has been a long-running character in the series. Uh, unfortunately, we say the plot takes some implausible detours en route to the over-the-top climax at the Bronx Zoo. So this is really just one for the series fans. And that's what we've got on the bestseller list for hardcover fiction. 
All right. We'll see what we have next week. Mm -hmm. Someday we'll get out of these summer doldrums. I'm sure it'll happen. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Vanessa Arpanfield tells us what it's like to be gay and in a gang. We'll be right back. I'm Wallace Shawn, author of Night Thoughts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Vanessa Panfil on the line. Her new book is The Gang's All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members. Hello, Vanessa. So glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. So how did you find yourself exploring uh, the world of gangs? So this this research really started uh, quite a while ago. So when I was in my late teens uh, living in Columbus, Ohio, I was involved in LGBTQ advocacy. And it started as me as a young queer person looking for opportunities to get involved, looking for ways to connect with other LGBTQ people. Um, and I got involved with several advocacy organizations in Columbus, Ohio. And in the process, I met lots and lots of young people who were LGBTQ. Some of them lived lives very similar to mine, and some of them lived lives that I might characterize as very different from mine. Um, so perhaps... Um, living in neighborhoods where they felt like they needed to join a gang in order to feel safe, uh, living in uh, home scenarios where they didn't feel comfortable coming out to their parents, uh, living in foster care and being bounced around, um, all sorts of uh, people that I met in the course of my um, advocacy work. And again, as a young person looking for ways to connect with other people, but also to advocate for LGBTQ people. Um And I was just really struck by some people's experiences, and I thought there's something going on here that we need to know more about, not just from an advocacy perspective, but as a young person going into a PhD program, there really isn't a lot out there about young queer people in general um, within criminology or criminal justice. And that was just a really serious oversight, in my opinion, that we weren't learning about why young people were getting involved in gangs or crime or uh, responding to victimization, uh, dealing with uh, the juvenile justice system. And so I just really became interested in this, basically from learning about other people's lives, people who were my peers, who in some ways, like I said, we were experiencing very similar things in terms of forming our identities, coming out, and in other ways, not experiencing uh, similar things. So I really wanted to get a better sense of what was going on from people who I met who had been involved in gangs or were involved in gangs, uh, were involved in uh, uh, violence or crime or or that sort of thing. So tell us a little bit um, about what you were expecting to find or hoping to find when you started this particular project. So when I started this project, I really thought that what I might find is that young gay people, in this uh, in this case, um, young uh, gay and bisexual men, uh, that's that's what my book focuses on. Um, I was kind of expecting that maybe they were joining gangs, sort of as a direct result of being harassed for being gay, or um, something of that nature, right? That they didn't feel a sense of belonging because they were gay. Um, and what I found is that, uh, young people join gangs for all sorts of reasons. Um, and that's true in, in, in the gangs literature as well. But, um, so it, it actually ended up being, uh, young, uh, uh, people who join gay gangs, 
uh, have sort of different reasons for joining them uh, than young men who join straight gangs. So it was it was not really in my study that it was a direct relationship. You know, I, I'm gay. I'm facing challenges. I'm going to join a gang to find protection and belonging. But it was all these experiences that they had that sort of led them to make that decision. Um, so in the case of the gay gang, so, so my book is sort of split, uh, sort of a comparative study of young men in gay gangs, young men in straight gangs, and then among the young men in primarily straight gangs, some of them had sort of a critical mass of, of um, gay, lesbian, and bisexual people in them. And what I found was that um, young men who joined straight gangs uh, joined sort of neighborhood groups, groups that were in their neighborhoods already, that were sort of organized around geography, that are the kind of traditional street gangs, quote unquote, you know, that we that we think of. Um, and they were joining those because those were uh, in their neighborhoods and they thought that those were ways to, again, find belonging, perhaps make a little money, get protection from from anything, not necessarily anything related to them being gay, because a lot of them actually weren't out. Uh, but for the young men who joined gay gangs, they were forming those gangs. They were forming them with with other young gay, lesbian, and bisexual people who were perhaps experiencing similar things. But it wasn't like we're going to join a gang. They didn't go out there and seek to do that initially. These groups sort of developed organically over time. So they were groups that were hanging out, and then they sort of maybe got in conflicts with other groups, and then they decided, oh, we need to make a name for ourselves, and we'll actually give ourselves a name. We'll start to try to create a, a, a reputation around town. And so through that, um, they were, you know, all of the young people in my study were still joining gangs for the reasons that other people join gangs, right? Protection, belonging, fun, uh, to make a little money. But it, it means something different sort of for the, for the people who, who created gay gangs than it does for the young men who joined neighborhood groups. So just to, just to uh, sum that up, you know, I really was thinking I'm going to go out in the field and I'm going to find out that all these gay people who I talk to are joining gangs because of anti-gay harassment. And even though that was a factor in the reasons they formed their peer groups that perhaps became gangs, that wasn't the, the main reason that they joined gangs. Did your study take you across racial lines? Yes. So I did. I was able to interview a racially diverse sample, um, but the majority of my participants, uh, so about 90 percent of them were young men of color. So men who are African-American, uh, Latino or multiracial. Um, and so even though I did interview some um, white young men, most of them were young men of color. Um, and a lot of their social networks were made up of young men who looked like them for the most part. So when they're referring other people to talk to me saying, hey, you should talk to Vanessa. She's doing this study about gay gang members. Um, if they're, if they're sort of tapping into their own networks, they're tending to, to tap into, like I said, people who sort of look like them in terms of racial or ethnic, um, backgrounds. But I did, I did get a racially diverse sample. Tell us a little bit about the field work in these communities in, in Columbus. 
Um, yeah. So in so when I was doing this study, um, initially I thought I'll I'll do an interview based study. Um, uh, those are fairly uh, they're not as common as as uh, studies with numbers. So quantitative studies in criminology and criminal justice, but that's that's something that we know what they look like. You know, you can go do an interview based study, and then other people do ethnographies, meaning they're in the field for several years. And my study is uh, somewhere on that continuum where I I did um, interviews with 53. Um, either gang and or crime involved young men, um, 48 of whom self-identified as being a gang member. But, um, so I, I did this, this, uh, interview based study, but I also spent uh, a couple hundred hours in the field, um, with these young men. And like I said, a lot of them, I, or not a lot of them, my initial sample, I knew from when I lived in Columbus. And so these are people who I had known, uh, some years prior and I was able to call them up and say, Basically, can can I see what's happening in your life today? Uh, can can I can we hang out? Can we talk? Can I talk to you about your life? Um, and because we had that relationship in the past, that was fine. So when we um, spent time together in the field, even though they knew I was conducting this study, we would do things that young people would do. We would go to gay clubs. Uh, we would hang out at their houses. They would they would have house parties, their birthday parties. We would go shoot pool. Um, we even went to, uh, like the Columbus pride parade. One time we even went to the Columbus zoo. I mean, we were, we were sort of all over the city doing things that young people do. And that's sort of a, I think there's a misconception that gang members are constantly involved in crime and violence. And even though those are activities that gang members might engage in, they also engage in activities that all other young people do, like going to clubs, like, uh, hanging out with their friends having a good time. Um, and so a lot of the field work that I did wasn't necessarily, well, I'm going to study you and I'm going to see what your life is like. It's like, we're going to go hang out. And in the course of that, I'm going to see how you interact with your friends. I'm going to see how you interact with your family or your boyfriend or that sort of thing. Um, and, and that was, yeah. So, so, so my field work was basically me hanging out with them and uh, seeing what was going on in their lives. You, you refer to these um, gang members as young people a lot, but you weren't all that much older than them. How how did that how did that feel? How did that interaction go? Like, were you sometimes basically a younger person hanging out with young people, or were you sometimes like feeling like the adult in the group? Oh <laughs> no, um, I definitely was. Uh, I was older than some of them and younger than some of them when I was conducting this work. And at the time, at least I would put myself in that same category as a, as a young person um, doing that work. Um, and in terms of feeling like an adult in an interaction, I mean, I suppose that's uh, subjective, right? So, so in some interactions where someone would say, well, I really want to move out of my parents' house, or I really want to get a job, or I really want to go back to school, or I really want to do these things. I had experienced that. And so I maybe, I understood what they were saying. Like, yes, it's, you really do want to move out of your parents' home. You really do want to go to school. I, I got that because I had experienced that. But in other ways, I think that some of the people in my study had experienced things that um, I'm not sure I could uh, handle as well as they had or to the extent that they had with my maturity, I guess. Um, you know, some of them were raising young children. Um, some of them had been incarcerated for several years. And so... Uh, and some of them were my age or older. And in those cases, um, they really had a lot to, to school me on. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> it, it didn't matter whether I was older or younger. These are experiences that I don't have. 
and um, that I could really learn from. Um, so I don't think I ever really had situations where I was thinking, oh, I'm the adult in this in this interaction. But there were definitely times where I would think, okay, I'm I'm several years older than someone who I'm talking to who's 18 and still in high school. And, you know, there are certain pieces of advice that I could maybe give them. Um, but similarly, there were they would give me advice, uh, too, that was that was very useful and, and helpful in my life. So if you could give us a little glimpse into life in these gangs, maybe give us a couple of case studies, uh, some of the people you interviewed. And and uh, maybe let's let's take a look in one of these predominantly gay gangs. Um, sure. So so one group that I spent. Um, considerable time with, and I call them in the book, um, the Royal Family, uh, they had, uh, so, the, so their members, um, uh, were mostly, again, uh, young adults, um, and, uh, a number of them, uh, held full-time jobs, and some of them went to school, and so it wasn't unusual for me to do an interview and then drive someone to school or drive someone to work or that sort of thing. Um, some of them lived independently. Some of them still lived with their families. Um, and so a typical day would really depend on the individual person, um, you know, where they might be working an entire day and then come home and hang out with their friends. Um, or they might um, come home and then uh, go engage in some illegal activity like selling drugs or selling sex. Um, or they might be unemployed and they might be selling drugs or selling sex. Um, as their sort of main source of income. Um, and so it sort of ranged. And uh, like one of them was on um, SSI disability. And so his days looked different than, than some other people's days. Um, and so for the most part, um, again, this, the kinds of activities that they would engage in together um, looked very similar to what other peer groups would do. But so, so for example, um, one of the uh, main, I don't want, one of the main, uh, the, the people in my study who, who who was responsible for a number of referrals, so so he vouched for me and talked to other people and said you should talk to Vanessa. Um, his name uh, in the study is Imani, and uh, there were several days where we would be at his house and uh, and I talk about some of these in the book where you know somebody one of his cousins would bring over their baby and he would babysit the baby for the day and then uh you know he was living with his uh, his family at the time so we'd be talking about something and he'd be saying oh man i have to go vacuum or i have to go do the dishes or i have to go do something because he's he has these these adult you know household responsibilities that he's doing but then maybe at night we might go out to a club uh we might um uh, we, we went to a Vogue ball one time, uh, so it's sort of an underground dance scene where people compete in these categories. Um, Vogue dancing has been um, uh, depicted in a documentary, Paris is Burning, um, uh, a acclaimed documentary, and um, so we might go to one of those, uh, or he might be practicing his moves. We watched other people on YouTube doing those moves, and then, yeah, we would, we would sometimes go out, and I would see... Uh, people in, in, in rival gay gangs get into an argument with each other, or I would see uh, people uh, uh, nearly fighting in the parking lot or actually fighting in the parking lot or um, that sort of thing. So in terms of seeing the kinds of things that they did, I, I saw all the sort of typical stuff, but also, yes, I saw them arrange dates to sell sex and I saw them, uh, uh, you know, s smoking weed or, or trying to sell drugs or that sort of thing. And so, a day in the life is kind of differs depending on the day. Um, 
But again, you know, not not an entire day of of, uh, of of fighting with gay crews. But when it happened, it was something that was sort of it had been building. There had maybe been some conflict. They had had a, uh, an argument or two. Somebody bumped into somebody. Somebody cussed somebody out. Somebody slapped somebody. Somebody, you know, and some of these uh, escalated into fairly serious conflicts where people ended up with. Uh, being hurt or being hospitalized, um, and those those events sort of took on a mythology too in in the gang's lives, where they would recount that. Do you remember what happened last time? Do we want to have that happen again? Do we want to do we want to deal with this in a different kind of way? Um, and usually, I wasn't there for for those sorts of things. Um, I was there for sort of the more run of the mill interactions that they had. But they would tell me later on about fights that they had gotten into or issues that happened um, in in the gay scene in Columbus. But for the most part, um, I saw very little actual actual violence in the field that I knew was between uh, members of the royal family. Um, sometimes, you know, I didn't know everyone who was who was involved in this kind of uh, violence, so I really didn't see. Any of the, uh, I didn't see most of the incidents that they've sort of worked into, you know, this is why we have beef with them. This is why we have conflicts with them, that sort of thing. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Vanessa R. Panfil, author of The Gang's All Queer. Um, so your research focuses on men, if you, as you've mentioned, but uh, were there any queer women gang members you encountered? I know that's outside the scope of your study, uh, but it might have been still of interest to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so some of the um, uh, participants in my study, uh, some of the young men in the book, were in gangs that had uh, lesbian or bisexual young women in them. Um, and I would sort of talk about, you know, what do you think their experiences are? Um, and they would tell me a little bit about that. And I, I found that to be very interesting because another area of research that I'm involved in actually has to do with uh, girls and young women in gangs. And uh, what, what does it mean to be a young woman in a gang and, and that sort of thing? And so I was really interested in that. And I would meet them in the field occasionally. And um, because I had the initial contacts that I had were only with uh, young men with, with gay and bisexual males, uh, I basically thought that's really who I was going to be able to uh, be able to talk to in the field. And so I, you know, a, a research study sort of has to follow, not sort of, they have to follow um, protocols that are, have been approved by the university. And I really just didn't write that into my protocol. And that was an oversight on my part. Um but also, I mean, I, I, sh- I would have liked to include that flexibility, but I also wouldn't say it was a mistake because the point of my study was really to find out what does it mean to be a gay man in a gang when we have all these perceptions about what it means to be in a gang and who gang members are and what they do and how they act. And then we have very different perceptions about what 
what gay men do or who gay men are. And so I was really interested in this tension between, you know, what does it mean to be a gay man in a gang when there are stereotypes of gay men and stereotypes of men in gangs, and they really don't intersect at all. Um, and so for me, I was really interested in that particular tension. You know, how do these young people navigate this, this particular issue where if you're expected to be masculine under all these circumstances, and we assume that gay men are feminine, um, you know, what, what's going on there? How do they deal with that in their lives? So, um, so again, I would have really liked to, to talk to young women. That's probably a, a gay bisexual. I'm sorry. Uh, well, some young women might identify as gay in the Midwest. We sort of say gay as a catch all uh, term, but so, uh, young, young women who are on the queer spectrum, you know, I would love to talk to them at some point in the future. Um, and that, that's something I'm, uh, definitely thinking about. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm definitely thinking about that. So you, you were just touching on uh, what's going to be next question, but um, what did you learn from the experiences of gay men in this uh, hyper-masculine context of gang life? What, what were their experiences? Well, so, you know, as I referenced earlier, um, just fortuitously, about half of my sample ended up being in uh, straight gangs. Um, and then about half of them ended up being in gay gangs. And so I was able to have this, this comparison between them. And as you can imagine, uh, the men in straight gangs were very much expected to have a masculine persona, be tough and uh, quick to fight and, and all these uh, traits that we sort of uh, associate with, with uh, masculinity or hypermasculinity. And then you know, this is not to say they didn't want to show that, but they also thought that coming out, uh, at least uh, uh, many of them, they thought that coming out on those, under those circumstances would basically render them as less than a full man, as not a masculine man, as, as you know, you can't, you can't possibly do, do these two things. Um, and so what was interesting was they had that perception, you know, I, I, that they, thought if they came out, that would cause problems for them. So some of them didn't, but some of them did actually come out to their straight gangs, but they came out to straight gangs. Once these straight gangs like knew that they were were, um, willing to fight, that they were tough, that they had achieved some marker of masculine success, whether that was, you know, uh, previous uh, uh, interactions with, uh, you know, sexual interactions with women, whether that was fighting prowess, whether that was just a general, you know, being being on his business, as some of them would say, you know, being, being able to make money, being able to take care of themselves, looking good, that sort of thing. If they had shown that, they were more willing to come out because they had proven that already. They had proven they could meet those markers of success, and they didn't feel like they had as much to lose. But some of them who had absolutely achieved status within their gangs still felt concerned about coming out because they didn't want other people in their gangs to look at them with side eyes. You know, oh, does that mean you're going to hit on me? Does that mean that people are going to call us soft? Does that mean that people are going to challenge us now? So they didn't want to come out because of those sort of lingering doubts. Um, but some, but, but some of them did. Um, and as I mentioned before, the men who were in gangs with a critical mass of gay, lesbian, or, or bisexual people felt far more comfortable coming out because there were other people like them in their gangs. Um, and so they were able to, in their words, they were able to be the real me in ways that they, um, felt like they might not be able to be in other types of groups. Um, yeah, so so there's that. And then um in terms of the the men in gay gangs, 
they still were held to these standards of being tough and being able to build a reputation and what they called becoming known, you know, so known as a public, known publicly as a gay man who, again, was on his business, who, who could uh, make money, who could take care of himself, um, that sort of thing. Uh, they were still held to those standards, but there was much more flexibility in terms of how feminine they could be, if they could uh, do certain gestures. They would refer. They would. They would talk about clothing. You know, they would say, "Well, with this group, you know, I really can wear skinny jeans or booty shorts or whatever if I wanted to." But they, at the end of the day, I need to be able to fight. If we're getting into a, an argument, you know, if we're getting into a, a a conflict with another crew, I need to be able to beat somebody up. I need to be able to be tough. Um, and so even though there was more flexibility there, they were still held to these standards of masculinity. And what's really interesting is that a lot of them, through the interviews and through my film work, were really critical of this idea. You know, do, is this what it means to be a man? How, how, do, how do I be a man today? What does it mean for me as a young man who's, you know, between the ages of 18 and 28? What does it mean to, to be a man in, in this day and age and in, in this world? Um, and so they were, they were kind of critical of, of some of those expectations, but at the same time, they might insult other gay men who are really flamboyant or really feminine. And so again, that tension between not wanting to be as masculine as they're expected to be or not, not wanting to be held to that stand, that rigid, rigid standard all the time, but at the same time, not wanting to, to be a pushover, not wanting to be a punk, um, not wanting to be taken advantage of. There was that tension in both gangs, but there was more flexibility for whether or not they could be out, whether or not they could be what they deemed, you know, feminine or engage in feminine behaviors or dress in feminine ways, much more flexibility in the gay gang and in the gang that had a critical mass of GLB people. Were, were you surprised to encounter gay gangs? I mean, that's not a phrase that gets a lot of currency. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I get that a lot where I say, you know, oh, I, I wrote this book on gay gang members. And for years now, people were saying gay gang members, like they misheard, you know, one of the words I said. And it's like, yeah, I said gay gang members. Um, And I actually had known when I started the study, I had thought, you know, from my history in Columbus that there were gay gangs. But I also didn't know, I had, I had moved away from graduate school, so I had been away for a little bit. And I wasn't quite sure if I'd be able to access them. I didn't know, you know, if there were, if I had, if I, uh, had a, had a way in, let's say. Um, so I wasn't surprised to encounter gay gangs, um, but I was somewhat surprised to find out that there really was a social world in Columbus that existed within the gay scene that was based on essentially rivalry and conflict between gay gangs. So there's three main gangs I focus on in the book. And um, throughout the course of my field work, which was uh, it lasted over about two and a half years because um, I, I wasn't living in Columbus at the time, but was traveling back and forth. Um, so over the course of two and a half years, some of the loyalty shifted a little bit. Um, there was a lot of, you know, even though there was an official rivalry, they might have been dating somebody in another in a rival gay gang or they might have been cousins with somebody in a rival gay gang. Um, so I did. I wasn't surprised that there were gay gangs. But I was a little bit surprised at how uh, dense the network was, for lack of a better phrase. Like, they all knew each other. They all had history with each other uh, of, of one form or another. Um, and they all had, like I said, some loyalties that, that shifted off and on. They had very serious conflicts and then it sort of fizzled out. Um, and, and so I really didn't know that there was a whole world, like I said, a social world that was related to 
the gay gang sort of competing for status and reputation within the gay scene in Columbus. Obviously, you're talking about Columbus right now, but uh, do other cities, I, I imagine uh, big and small, also have gay gangs? Yeah, and, and there's definitely evidence to suggest that, and it's uh, mostly been coming out in the past uh, in the past decade. Um, so there are several documentaries that talk about either um, gay men who are in straight gangs. Um, there was a recent documentary about an all-gay and transgender gang in D.C. Um, there's been research about um, an all-lesbian gang in Philadelphia. And so there are um, there are a number of other studies or uh, uh, documentaries that I can point to and say, look, there, this is happening in other cities. And so even though what I'm describing in my book is very much about Columbus in some ways, you know, Columbus is sort of a character in the book, right? It's the backdrop. It's, it's where all this is happening. It's where I grew up. It's how I know these people. But at the same time, the things that are, the things that I'm talking about in the book, talking about uh, homophobia, uh, poverty, racial segregation, uh, the things that I'm talking about are structural factors that uh, impact people's experience. And so it's not surprising to me that in other large cities, um, we're finding out that there are young people who are joining gangs uh, for various reasons. Um, But as I mentioned before, I would suspect that they're joining them to find a sense of belonging for various reasons. Um, And in this case, specifically joining a gay, gay gang because of uh, or at least in part because of forces like homophobia, like uh, misogyny, you know, in the case of, of young men who are sort of feminine, um, you know, these are structural forces also that that impact people's lives. And so it doesn't at all surprise me that there are gay gangs in other cities. And again, that's because this is not, you know, a handful of guys in Columbus, Ohio, who experience a unique thing and join a gang. This is young men who are experiencing particular structural forces who build community and try to deal with marginalization in certain ways. We've been talking with Vanessa Arpanto. You can find her book, The Gang's All Queer, in stores right now. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we remember the life and work of editor Judith Jones, so stay tuned. Hi, this is Christopher Golden, the author of Ararat, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today that person is Mark Rotella, who's going to tell us all about the late editor Judith Jones. So, Judith Jones, one of the best-known editors, uh, she edited uh, cookbooks, uh, literature. She died at 93. Now, she had been at Knopf for quite some time. She joined in 1957 and didn't officially retire until 2011. She is one of the best things she's known for bringing on is she discovered Julia Child. And not only Julia Child, I mean, she she brought on Julia Child back in 1961. Um, And that book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, sold 
really regularly throughout that time. It didn't really hit the, uh, it wasn't a blockbuster bestseller until, uh, 2009. But, uh, when, when, uh, when it got, when Ju- the movie of Julie and Julia came out, what it was based on. But, um, I, I mean, this is just such a, such a, Strong cookbook uh, in the you know the the last half of the 20th century, but not only that, she also published uh, books by James Beard. I mean, these are all really um, top-notch uh, uh, cookbook authors: Marion Cunningham, as well as Modern Joffrey on Indian food, and Claudia Roden, uh, as well as Edna Lewis and Lydia Bastianich and Marcella Hazan. So you see all the names that uh, the big cookbook names. Now she also, I think, one of the things I've people didn't realize about her, I mean, people who knew her, of course, was that back when uh, she was, she first started in publishing, she was in Doubleday's office. She was living in Paris with her husband. Uh, they were just married and she was uh, to make a little bit of money. She uh, was going through a pile of rejected manuscripts for the English audience, the English language audience. And there she came across this book called The Diary of Anne Frank. Wow. Uh, um, and yeah, and and she pulled it out, read it. It had already been published in German and the Dutch. And she wrote back to the uh, uh, American editors at Doubleday and said, "We absolutely have to publish this." So, uh, not only that, she edited translations of French philosophers. Uh, I'm not too sure this is when she was in France or shortly after, but Al- Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre and. Um, and so she was really just brought on a lot of of authors, including she had also uh, edited books by uh, John Updike, and I think she she was the editor for all but one of his books, as well as uh, Ann Tyler, John Hersey. Peter Taylor, Sharon Olds, and William Maxwell. So, I mean, her interest and her taste ran across the board, but all, whatever it was, high-end stuff. She also wrote a cookbook uh, herself in 1996 called The Pleasures of Cooking uh, for One, and wrote a couple with her husband, Evan, um, on bread making and uh, a couple of other cookbooks. But uh, Sonny Maida released a statement this morning. He's the chairman, the editor-in-chief of uh, Knopf. And what he says is, it's impossible to imagine book publishing without Judith. Her authors have been recipients of five Pulitzer Prizes, five National Book Awards, and three National Book Critics Circle Awards. And her cookbook authors have been recipients of 41 awards from the James Beard Foundation and 13 awards from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And Judith herself was honored with Lifetime Achievement Awards from both the James Beard Foundation and the IACP. It is no exaggeration, uh, Sunny says, to say that she profoundly influenced not only the way America reads, but also the way we cook. And um, that's it on, on Judith. So uh, it's really, really big editor. And it was really surprising. I mean, she was, she was editing all the way to 2011. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It's really good to, uh, to remember her and honor her and to acknowledge those really incredible contributions. Yeah, really, really amazing. Um, lots of stuff spanning, spanning a good long time. Well, it sounds like her, her life is also one that would be worth, uh, exploring in detail and, um, uh, researching and hopefully will inspire some of our listeners to do that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, thank you, Mark. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. 
And I'm Andrew Albany, Senior Writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Natasha Pulley, author of The Bedlam Stacks. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episodes giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 